0: Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. So like many of you, I really enjoy going to movies. And uh, those of you who are movie lovers will know that all the great movies and the most memorable movies have at least one like iconic moment, one defining scene that comes to represent that movie in some significant way. And it has a way of kind of embedding itself in our collective memory and then defines and shapes certainly our recollection of that movie for many, many years to come. And even though you might not necessarily remember every scene from the movie, you certainly remember that iconic scene. For example, like this scene that you'll see on screen behind me from the movie The Sound of Music. To be honest with you, I've never even seen the movie The Sound of Music. And I have no desire to see it either. But I know that that scene is from The Sound of Music because it is so iconic. All right, what about this one? The famous bow with the boat scene from the movie Titanic. I definitely saw that movie, even though it was 26 years ago. Can you believe it? It's still fresh in my memory. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Now how about this one from the iconic groundbreaking animation movie The Lion King the moment when baby Simba is held up before all the animals of the pride lands right by Rafiki the cheeky baboon and as you look at that image you can hear the music in the background can't you right you're singing it to yourself (laughs) as you see that scene now I, I know this scene well because when this movie released my son was about two years old and he absolutely loved it and we watched this movie without exaggeration at least 317 times Like at least, so I know that scene well. And of course, I don't even have to mention the movie's name. I just need to put this image up on screen and you know exactly what movie this represents, right? The Matrix, that famous slow motion bullet dodge scene is kind of deeply embedded in our memories, right? Now, of course, the life in the ministry of Jesus had many defining moments and many iconic scenes that unfortunately were not captured for us on film, but were recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, And in fact, John the Apostle, when he writes at the end of his gospel, he says, you know, if if we took everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did and we try to write it down, there would not be enough books in all of the world to record it all, which, of course, is a little bit of hyperbole on John's part. But the point he's simply making is this, that Jesus said a lot and he did a lot. And what we have recorded for us in the gospel records are all those defining moments, those iconic scenes Those significant events that defined the story of Jesus, that embedded themselves in the collective memory of the first followers of Jesus, and came to represent the Jesus story and the Jesus movement for many, many, many years to come. And today we're going to have a look at one of those defining moments and those iconic scenes in the Gospel of Luke, which of course is the book that we're exploring together through this series. Now, before we do that, I do need to share something really important with you about the gospel accounts so that what we're about to read together makes sense. What you need to understand is that in our New Testament, we have four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of those four gospel accounts presents the life and the story of Jesus in a unique way. So each of the four has a particular emphasis, a particular Priority, a unique audience, and so there are various little focal points in each of those four gospels. And so, to some degree, they kind of differ from one another. So, for example, Matthew's gospel is primarily concerned with connecting Jesus to the Old Testament Jewish history. And so, there are lots of Old Testament references and quotes and citations in Matthew, and Matthew goes to great lengths to try and connect Jesus to the historical figures of the Old Testament. And Matthew's also quite keen to present Jesus as a teacher. And so Matthew's gospel is jam-packed full of what Jesus said. Many, many parables, many of which are about the kingdom of God. Mark's gospel, by comparison, is not so concerned with what Jesus said, but with what Jesus did. And so in Mark's gospel, there were fewer parables, but more miracles, And so Mark's gospel reads like a Bruce Willis action film, right? It's like short and sharp and punchy and powerful and there's high pace and high drama and lots of action. Because Mark is not so much concerned about the words of Jesus as he is about the works of Jesus. And so there's an emphasis in Mark on what Jesus did rather than on what Jesus said. Uh, In John's gospel, John is not really concerned with the history or the biography of Jesus at all. He's more concerned with the spirituality and the deity of Jesus. And so John's gospel has a chronology that's all over the place. All the events like are mixed up and, and disorientated and none of them align with the chronology of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And that's primarily because John wrote his gospel like 50 years after Matthew, Mark and Luke wrote theirs. And so by the time John writes his gospel, all the history and the biography and the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry is already recorded. It's already established. So John doesn't need to cover that territory again. So John's gospel is entirely unique. In fact, something like 92% of the content that's in John's gospel doesn't appear in any of the other three gospels, right? So you get the idea. Four gospel accounts, four perspectives on the life of Jesus, four unique emphases, four different characteristics, four different audiences— but all representing the same story. Now, something important to understand about the gospel of Luke, which is the gospel that we have been exploring together in this series, is that Luke's gospel is a gospel of contrasts. By that I mean throughout Luke's gospel record, we find these comparisons and these contrasts of appropriate and inappropriate responses to the presence of God and more particularly to the person of Jesus. So what Luke will do is he will hold up two people who encounter Jesus, and then he will compare and contrast their response to Jesus. And he will also emphasize the teachings of Jesus that do the same, that draw these comparisons. So let me just give you a few examples to illustrate. First of all, Luke's gospel is the only gospel record that contains the story of Lazarus, the poor beggar, and the foolish rich man. And of course, it contrasts the eternal fate of the two, which is significantly different. Luke's gospel is also the only gospel that contains the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who are at prayer in the temple. And it contrasts the fact that the self-righteous Pharisee left condemned before God, but the penitent tax collector left justified before God because of the difference in their hearts before him. Luke's gospel is the only gospel account that records the parable of the Good Samaritan and contrasts the reactions and the responses of the priest and the Levite with that of the Samaritan to the wounded traveler. Uh, Luke's gospel is the only gospel that records the story of Mary and Martha, that famous story where they have quite different responses to the presence of Jesus. Jesus comes to visit And uh, Luke tells us that Martha busies herself with much serving and much um, work, and Mary chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus, and he kind of commends the one and rebukes the other. So he's contrasting their response to the presence of Jesus. Uh, Luke's gospel is the only gospel to record the parable of the prodigal son. And of course, there he's contrasting the attitude of the older brother with that of the younger brother in relation to the father. Luke's gospel is the only gospel to record the healing of the 10 lepers. And the thankful response of the one is contrasted with the ungrateful response of the nine. And of course, Luke's gospel is also the only gospel to record the story of the two thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. And as you know, their response is quite different indeed. So you get the idea. Right? Luke's gospel is primarily concerned with holding up these contrasts and showing two very different responses to the presence and the person of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 7, from verse 36 to 50, Luke offers us another one of these defining moments, these iconic scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus that holds up yet another contrast. When Jesus gets an unusual invitation from a rather unexpected source. All right, so let's read together. Luke chapter seven, verse 36 to 50. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus, Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain lender. Notice again the comparison and the contrast. Two people owed money to a certain lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right. So this is another one of those defining kind of iconic, significant events and moments in Jesus' life and ministry that is unique to Luke's gospel. And what happens is Jesus gets invited to dinner at this Pharisee's house, at the house of a religious leader by the name of Simon. And he goes there to have dinner. Now, while he's there, a woman who is known to the community as being immoral and sinful, which is probably a euphemism for being a prostitute. Although the scripture doesn't say that, it certainly implies that. Although we must acknowledge that she could have been all kinds of sinful. She might have been the owner of a brothel or she might have been a thief or she might have been a con artist, but she was likely a prostitute. This sinful, immoral woman shows up at the house uninvited. And she comes in and she stands behind Jesus, who is reclining at the table, and she begins to sob her heart out. And as she weeps, she falls to her knees, and behind Jesus, she begins to wipe his feet with her tears. And once she's wiped his feet clean with her tears, she then takes her hair and she dries them. And then she pulls out a little jar of incredibly expensive perfumed oil and she pours it over the feet of Jesus. Now you can only imagine the scene and how incredibly awkward it might have been for everyone there. Right, we've got Simon who is a religious leader. He is a man of integrity, a man of status, a man of position, a man of power. A man who considers himself to be morally superior to everybody else because he's a Pharisee, he's part of an elitist, exclusivist, separatist religious group that considers themselves to be essentially better than everybody else. And in a lot of ways, they probably were upstanding, moral members of the community. And then, of course, Simon's got some other guests there who are not named but are present, and Jesus is there, and his disciples and his followers are along for the meal as well, and. And no doubt the fact that Jesus had showed up at this religious leader's house would have attracted attention from the community. So there were definitely other onlookers who were hanging around to see what might potentially happen. And then, of course, this immoral, sinful woman shows up uninvited and presents herself. And you know what I love about this scene? This is like the original Alpha dinner right here right? You've got like religious people who think they've figured it all out and they know God and they know what God wants and they know what God kind of requires. And then you've got the followers of Jesus who have kind of connected themselves to him, but they're still trying to figure out like what following him really requires and what it means. And you've got all these curious onlookers who are just there really to see what's going on and see what they can learn about this person, Jesus. And then you've got this immoral, sinful, corrupt woman who kind of shows up as well because she's heard about Jesus and no doubt heard about all the miracles he's performed. So this is in a lot of ways like the original Alpha event. I know Nicky Gumbel reckons he came up with the idea of the Alpha dinner, but this is an Alpha dinner happening right here. And in the middle, all of it is Jesus They've all come because they're curious about Jesus. They all want to know Jesus. They want to understand Jesus. They want to test Jesus. They want to investigate Jesus. And through the course of this rather unusual moment, this woman who is marginalized and outcast and on the fringes of society does something quite extraordinary in pouring out what is essentially an act of worship and an act of trust and an act of honor on the person of Jesus. So the question is, what exactly is going on here? And I think bearing in mind what Luke is trying to do in his gospel, in presenting us with these contrasts and these comparisons of response to the person of Jesus, Luke is once again offering us another comparison. Another contrast, and he's highlighting two very different responses to the person of Jesus. So firstly, we have Simon, and to be honest with you, we don't know much about Simon other than we know he's a Pharisee. He's a Jewish religious leader, so he is a part of this elitist, exclusivist sect. And we know from the Gospels that there was a fair amount of like animosity and hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees. They did not get on well at all. And some of Jesus' strongest language and strongest rebuke was for the Pharisees. And of course, they saw him as a troublemaker and a rebel. So there was tension between them, and there was constantly animosity. Now, we, we, we obviously cannot assume that Simon is outright antagonistic towards Jesus. We at least have to give him the benefit of the doubt, because it may be that he invited Jesus to his house for dinner because he was genuinely curious He really wanted to know more about who this Jesus is. That said, I must acknowledge that I am suspicious of Simon. And the reason why I question the sincerity of his motive in inviting Jesus to dinner is because firstly, he does so quite publicly. And Simon would have known that his own reputation and his standing in the community would have been at risk if he invited Jesus into his home. And so if he was genuinely, sincerely curious about who Jesus was and why Jesus had come, he probably would have gone to see Jesus secretly at night when nobody was around. Like Nicodemus did in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, who was another religious leader, another Jewish Pharisee, went to see Jesus secretly at night because he was genuinely and sincerely curious about this person, Jesus. But he did not want to put his reputation at risk with the community. And so if Simon genuinely wanted to know, he probably would have gone to see Jesus secretly. And secondly, because Simon does not offer Jesus any of the customary hospitality that you would ordinarily show a guest who has traveled a long way to be with you. It was fairly common in those days, if you had people over for dinner, that before you ate together, you or your servants would wash their feet. Because they had traveled a long distance on a dusty, dirty path to get there. Their feet would have been dry and cracked and sore. And so it was standard hospitality to wash the feet of your guests prior to dinner and to anoint them with oil as a means of refreshing them and welcoming them. But Simon does not offer Jesus any of that customary hospitality. So it's pretty safe to assume that Simon does not see Jesus as a friend. At the very least, there's indifference in his heart toward Jesus, if not outright hostility and animosity. And it's probably more likely that Simon has invited Jesus into his home so that he can trick him, so that he can catch him out, so that he can test him or get him to commit some kind of blasphemy or some kind of offense so that they can prosecute him. So that's Simon. Then we have the woman who is unnamed. She's unidentified. She's unidentified. We don't know who she is, and we don't even know for sure what she does. But we do know that whatever it is, it's probably illegal or immoral or both, because she is a social outcast. And yet she comes into the presence of Jesus, and clearly, clearly she is burdened. She is carrying the weight of her own life. She is carrying the burden of her moral failing and her shame and her guilt. And she's feeling the heaviness of her separation from the community. And so she comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus and she weeps over him. And reaches out to him in hope, in expectation that this Jesus whom she has heard about might potentially be to her whatever it is that she needs him to be in that moment. Now, what is fascinating is how Jesus responds to these two people. Because to Simon, Jesus responds with a sermon. To the woman, he responds with salvation. Simon gets a lecture from Jesus, but the woman receives the love of Jesus. And that is because Simon comes to Jesus With indifference and hostility, but the woman came to him with brokenness and humility. Simon wanted to test Jesus, she wanted to trust Jesus, and that made all the difference in the world. And, friends, this is the point that Luke is trying to make. This is what Luke wants us to understand, and it's this that how you receive Jesus determines how you receive from Jesus. How you receive Jesus determines how you receive from Jesus. In other words, if all you receive Jesus to be is a teacher, then all you receive from him are good teachings. And if all you receive Jesus to be is a prophet, then all you receive from him are prophecies. And if all you receive Jesus to be is a good man, then all you are going to receive from Him is a fine moral example. But if you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you receive from Him Lordship and salvation. How you receive Him determines how you receive from Him. And John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and first followers, said this in John chapter one, verse eleven to thirteen. John understood this principle so well because he said in the opening chapter of his gospel concerning Jesus, he said he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become. Children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you notice that John says there, Jesus came to His own, but His own received Him, not but to as many as received Him. To them He gave the right to be called children of God. Because John understood this principle, that how you receive Him, determines how you receive from Him. And so the single biggest question any human heart can ask is the question, how have I received Him? Have I received Jesus as my Lord and my leader? Have I received Him as my Redeemer and my Savior? Because the answer to that question will determine what you receive from Him. Jesus can only ever be to you and to me what we receive Him to be. And I remember a number of years ago, I had a really good friend who was studying at university at the same time I was. And there was a girl in our class that he fell in love with, took an, a kind of attraction to. She was in our kind of circle of acquaintance. And he started to like her. And one day he decided that he wanted to communicate clearly how it is he felt about her. And she was staying in a residence on campus at the university, and he went out and he bought this enormous bunch of red roses, like the biggest bunch of red roses I've ever seen. And he went over to her res one evening, and he went to her room and he knocked on the door, and she opened the door, and there he was standing with these big kind of red roses. (laughs) And of course, his intention was to communicate his love and his feeling and the moment she saw him she realized what he was trying to do the only problem is she did not feel the same way and so having received the flowers from him she handed them back (laughs) and she said to him I'm so sorry but I just do not feel the way you feel and this is not going to (laughs) happen close the door <laughs> Shame. needless to say my friend was heartbroken right and for whatever reason she felt the need that she had to definitively close the door on this relationship but here's the point right because my friend clearly understood that in rejecting the gift what she was really doing is rejecting the giver of the gift And what we need to understand is that God has offered every single one of us a gift. It's the gift of mercy, the gift of grace, the gift of compassion, the gift of love, the gift of friendship, the gift of relationship. But that gift is wrapped up in the person of His Son, Jesus. All of God's goodness, all of His kindness, all of His mercy, all of His grace, All of his compassion is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And when you receive the gift of Jesus, you receive the giver of the gift. But when you refuse the gift, you refuse the giver of the gift. And that is why the most important question any human heart can ask is what have I done with the person of Jesus? What have I done with the gift of Jesus? Now, friends, you might be here this morning and you might be like Simon. You might be a model citizen and an upstanding member of the community. You might consider yourself to be morally superior. You might consider yourself to be religious. You might be integrous. You might be a good person. Or you might be here today and you might be like that immoral woman. You know all too well how spiritually and morally bankrupt you really are. And maybe like her, you labor every day under the burden of your guilt and your shame. But here's the point, And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. It doesn't matter if you are Simon or the unnamed woman. You need Jesus. Jesus came to save both. He came to redeem both. Whether you are an integrous, upright, member of the community who considers themselves to be morally superior, or if you are a corrupted, debaucherous, sinful individual, you need Jesus. And Jesus came for both. Now you might be sitting here today and you might be saying, you know what Tim, I don't know that I'm kind of ready (laughs) in this point in my life to receive Jesus that way. You might just still be in that Space of exploring and investigating who Jesus is, and you might not be able to say with any conviction or confidence that that I know Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. And that's okay. My encouragement to you today is just keep investigating, keep exploring, keep asking the questions, keep showing up. A place like Alpha, that you heard is coming in April, is a great place for you to continue that journey. Come and explore, come and investigate, come and ask your questions. Come and gather around the person of Jesus and find out more about who He is and why He came. And if you are a follower of Jesus, and you have received Him as Lord and leader, then if there are friends and family members in your life, whether they be upstanding moral examples or fallen, broken, sinful individuals, bring them along. Bring them along because everybody needs Jesus. And everybody needs to hear the good news that in Him, God has offered us the most indescribable and wonderful gift. And yet I wonder this morning, if there is anyone here today who perhaps maybe for the first time in your life, you're at the point where you're ready to say, you know what? I think I'm ready to say yes to Jesus as my Lord and my leader, as my Savior and my Redeemer. And if that's you this morning, it would be the greatest honor and pleasure and privilege to pray for you and to pray with you today. So here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. Bow your head and close your eyes all across this auditorium. As we close our time together this morning, I wanna just extend an invitation to you to indicate in some way today that you are saying yes to Jesus. That may be for the very first time in your life, like this sinful woman falling at the feet of Jesus saying, Jesus, I need you and I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want to receive you and I want to receive the gift that God is offering in you. Or perhaps for you this morning, if you're honest with yourself, at some point in your life you did that. But for whatever reason, you've wandered away from Jesus. Maybe you became like discouraged or distracted and hurt and offended and so... You wandered far from Him, and you're not following Him, and you're not serving Him. But today, as we s- share this time and this space together, you can just sense Jesus calling you and inviting you back into that place of relationship with Him. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're saying, Tim, would you include me in this prayer this morning? Because I would love to receive Jesus like that. There's nobody looking around, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can see who you are and where you are so that this morning I can pray with you and for you and trust that God will meet with you this morning, transform your life the way he transformed that woman's life. So just put it up for a moment and keep it up so I can see it. God bless you. That's wonderful. God bless you down here. That's wonderful. And over there at the back, God bless you. And down here in the front, God bless you. God bless you. It's wonderful. God bless you over here on my left. It's wonderful to see. And down here in the middle, All right, followers of Jesus, let's put our hearts together in faith and agreement as we pray for these precious men and women who are reaching out to God this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your love for each and every one of us. And I thank you, Father, that you see hands raised this morning in front of you. You know their names. You know their stories. And, Father, I thank you that you love each and every one of them this morning with the most perfect Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.